0: secret space wars, advanced cryptozoology, and all subjects of theosophic truth, esotericism, and the occult. The Beyond Top Secret Texan Podcast. Mindstar. By Michael Aquino. Chapter 5. Anamnesia's Mindstar. You have left your body. Be aware if you care. Your mind has left your body. And for this one moment, you are under the polar ice cap in a place we call home. How is it there, white bear? Like what? That you grow... now all of you come back to here, and now else when to there. Move on out the other way where do you find yourself floating, growing there? You can exercise your mind on where you want to go, and you can see the city lights flashing two thousand miles below you. You can feel the sands of Zanzibar or a piece of the nearest sun. Find out what and who you are and if you need to run. There is one moment in your life and it can come at any time and you remember all of what went on from the instant you were born through your early years. And if you can fasten on that moment and expand through the afterglow You can reverse your mind in time and travel back to when the Earth was formed. The sky was born and the universe began. You have left your body. Return when you may. Save it for another day beyond you. Paul Cantner, your mind has left your body. A. Mind Star. How can each soul find and see itself, since it is a singularity with which each individual cannot get outside of? This harks back to philosophers such as Descartes, who sought, one might say chaotically, to prove their conscious existence. Proof is of a necessity external, as discussed above, so Descartes' famous "Cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am, is futile. It is impossible to describe a thought which is not the composite of external sensory input. No conceptual thought, Kant's pure reason, Plato's neasis, and Nietzsche's horizon building, ...begins from the pure, unsupported apprehension of one's conscious self as an exist- existential reality, the Ba of ancient Egypt, the psyche of the Greeks, the golden flower of the Tao, the soul of the Judeo-Christianity, and identifying in the words of Dr. Regavan Ayer, not the shadowy self or false egoity, which merely reacts to eternal and external stimuli... Rather, there is an eye of wisdom in every person which in deep sleep is fully awake and which has a translucent awareness of self-consciousness as pure primordial light. Indeed, as this pure primordial light is brought fully into focus, none of the above labels seems completely adequate or accurate. Some, like Kant's and Nietzsche's address, express expression rather than essence the Egyptian realization of the complete essence was multifold, not limited to the Ba. For this discussion, therefore, I propose a fresh term inspired by Dr. Ear's sublime description above. Being the self-contained, self-sustaining concentration of essence which exists as the core of the conscious mind, This new term not only frees us from the limitations and preconceptualizations of old labels, it is a constant reminder that the present examination is a fresh evolutionary one, in which we cannot be content to coast on inaccurate or inadequate myths or stereotypes. Thus emboldened, therefore, let us return to the anamnesis. To address the question of the mind star's ability to interact with a temporarily physical body while not itself containing any element of the outside universe or the objective universe. In conventional conversations, this is often referred to as the mind body problem. The key we begin, or the key we bring into this lock, is that of fields. B. Fields. Definition. What exactly is a field? When something occurs somewhere in the OU because something else happens somewhere else in the OU that's the uh, real universe, the physical universe, the objective universe, the outside universe. By not detectable means by which the cause produces the effect, the two events are said to be connected by a field. Well-known examples being gravity, the gravitational fields, and magnetism with the magnetic fields. Understandably, OU scientists don't like fields. To the extent that they remain fields in defiance of all attempts to connect their events, they are inconvenient and annoying refutations of one of the most sacred universal cows, the law of cause and effect. Science's fallback excuse is that the law must apply to every filled phenomenon, too. The medium just has been discovered yet. Sometimes, even more desperately, scientists hypothesize completely fantastic missing links, such as gravitons, to emulate Robert Anton Wilson's amusing explanation of conventional religious jargon, leaving both scientists and the theologists Thrashing around in the terminological quicksand, let us proceed to a very special type of field, the integral with the human body, life fields. Number two, the human body is an electromagnetic machine as such that it both generates and is enveloped by electromagnetic fields, EMF controlling everything from the heartbeat and respiration to sleep and female menstrual cycles. Oviation To understand the significance of the EMFs to the human body it is first necessary to appreciate that each such body is not an inert static clump of permanent matter. It is rather an an organic complex in a constant state of reorganization and reconstitution. For instance, Human livers and serum proteins are replaced every 10 days and the whole of the proteins in the body about every 160 days. Moreover, these protein molecules are extremely complex devices. Not mere raw materials, not even a single amino acid can be out of place in the replacement. To put it another way, there are about 60,000 billion cells in the human body. And every day, about 500 billion of these die and are replaced and rebuilt. Why? One possibility is that these molecules are so complex that they inherently are unstable and thus are continuously deteriorating. The metabolic system, including the liquid-based transmission of food and raw material through the body, is a raging furnace of consumption and regeneration. How does the body know precisely how to recreate each cell and molecule? It cannot be within the object itself because an object cannot gar- cannot organize itself. The answer lies in the existence of an entirely layered network of electromagnetic fields throughout and within the body, altogether compromising a master plan EMF for it. Dr. Harold Saxon Burr, Professor Emeritus of Anatomy, Yale School of Medicine, named this L field for life field. In the case of the human body, its organizing systems cannot be chemical because then the system itself would be subject to the same entropic processes. Hence there is more to a human being than mere chemistry. It requires an organizing field, not merely an accidental accumulation of proteins, thus the notion of gene randomness is invalid. 3. The Telos Organization inherently requires preconception based upon purpose. Conventional academic doctrine is that living beings propose is a purpose of selecting the result of environmental survival needs. Darwinian natural selection. There is no inherent purpose to life forms beyond passive reactive survival. Avoidance is a pain, the seeking of pleasure, and instincts to reproduce. Prior to Darwin's theory of passive natural selection, the French biologist Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, while not denying such passive evolution, augmented it with what he termed soft evolution in modern parlance, Lamarckism. According to the theory, characteristics developed a, are acquired by a given living being can be inherited by its progeny, thus adding the element of intentional purpose to evolution. If Lamarckism is allowed to operate according to human intellectual will, of course, then the principle of purpose on the individual human scale is established. This is a term suggesting that there may be a greater element of purpose above and beyond the individual. While heretical to the Darwinian establishment, such master principles of purpose was neither known or unknown nor repugnant to the ancients, who by the time it had reached Greece from Egypt, referred to it as telos, telology, teleology, sorry, is the doctrine and final causes of phenomena existing. Further, that purpose and design are part of, or apparent in nature. Further, that Further, that phenomenon only guided by mechanical forces, e.g. passive natural selections, but also move towards certain goals to self-realization. The opposite of teleology is mechanism, which describes phenomena in terms of prior causes instead of the presumed destination or fulfillment. The existence of life-fields establishes that humanity is teleological, not mechanistic in its physical design and development. The species is not a random, universal accident, just stumbled onward through equally haphazard survival of the fittest. This simple and obvious truth is shattering to mechanistic science, because inevitable mandates on intelligence established in guiding the Telos, the Egyptian Neteru, Pythagorean and Platonic forms are in vogue, simplification the god-slash-god. But the scientist's teleological nightmare gets worse, or better, depending upon one's point of view. Thought Fields number 4. As it turns out, human thought also has the properties of a field. While Dr. Purr was conducting his 40 years of research regarding what would eventually emerge as L-fields, other academicians we're examining mental activity and discovering that it too does not ha- behave as a linear machine, as for instance electronic computers running programs of artificial intelligence. Among these findings. <coughs> Number one, a memory is not localized in the brain except it is we're connected to a very immediate, specific, and continuous sensory function, e.g. perception of heat. Destroying select even major areas of the brain does not have a traceable effect upon the general memory function. Other parts of the brain simply take over and even appear to relearn and refining supposedly excised memories. If the source of such reacquisition is not physical, then it defaults to a field phenomenon. Access to memories is also non-linear. One may forget what one had for dinner the previous evening while having a crystal-clear recall of information and imagery decades previously. The process by which memories are so assorted as it is grayscale spectrum, not an either-or action, remains unknown. Memories access is instantaneous, its age or complexity notwithstanding. This again is non-linear as computers must go through selections, exclusions, and sequences to answer memory questions. As Plato illustrated in the Mino, the underlying basis of all knowledge, the primal building blocks upon which learning and reasoning depend for their accuracy and coherence are inherent to each incarnate intelligence. animesia relative awareness of the nidorum forms in non-metaphysical terms. Humans know instinctively whether they are thinking reasonably and with validity. This is not the same thing, obviously, as processing thoughts on the basis of invalid information. Of course, much of what humans know as the day-to-day thought is at least assumed as linear, the precise term being algorithmic. Human brains coast through each day largely on sensory stimulus response-slash-autopilot, about 95% of which is subconscious behavior. If the avalanche of daily sensory data had to be dealt with consciously, anything resembling normal human activity would be quite impossible. As with Dr. Burr's L-Fields, M. Russell's T-Fields met with something less than a thunderous enthusiasm for the established conventional scientific circles, i.e. the Mechanists. It was bad enough for Burr to discover an external purposeful intelligence behind the universe's bodily organization and evolution. It was far worse for the most essential elements of individual human presence of mind to be completely removed from the physical brain. In this devastating one-two blow, Darwinian mechanism had been completely exploded with the terrible specters of intelligent design and a metaphysical soul returning. The absent Judeo-Christian trappings from their post-enlightenment banishing, as these rediscoveries could not be invalidated or discredited, they met with the academic establishment's fallback response. They were simply and persistently ignored, except, of course, here. IN THE OCCULT EGYPTIAN MIND STAR emanations. To this point we have first cleared away the conventional religious and materialistic wreckage from the popular concept of the soul and established both the metaphysical existence of the mind star and its means of interaction with the OU brain and body. We are now in a position to identify the elements or emanations of the MS as the Egyptians apprehended them. This is thus the course of the core of the book, but it cannot be overemphasized that this is not a mere recitation for the reader's amusement. It is a doorway, a map, by which the individual can redirect the power of discretionary consciousness to its source, purification, and realization of immortality. Each of the following eight emanations proceeds from the more universe linked to the more subjective universe linked. Predictably, this makes the more basic ones that much easier to identify based on the familiar, if subconscious, OU usage. A comparison may be made to Plato's Pyramid of Thought, which in his dialogues he stratified as Icacio, primitive emotion, Pistis, ordinary, active, or reactive thinking, Dianoa, precise, logical, enlightened thought, and gnosis, intention and apprehension of the ultimate good, the Agathon. The Egyptian priesthood knew that each living creature was possessed of several existence emanations above and beyond the metabolic and mind and body. All sentient beings possessed the first four beings endowed with the cult, or with the gift of set, awareness of isolation, self-consciousness, the next two, the Ban-Ka, as well as in those of initiatory capacity and attainment, the next one, the Sakim, and in unique instances, the ultimate one, the Ankh. Accordingly, each of the following expositions is meant not just something to be read, but as a personal application exercise, upon being alerted to each emanation, redirecting your thoughts inward until you find and recognize it yourself. You may be surprised at how effortless this is, as effortless and self-evident indeed as all of the great truths presented in Mindstar, each of which you find, perhaps to your surprise, that you know already. Welcome to Animesia is a gateway, a map to your personal grail castle. Once you know that it exists, as there to be quested and found, you have only to descend. Audis Vader et terrestre centrum at Tingis Code Fitchi. Descend, Audacious Traveler, and you will reach the center of the earth. I did it. Arne Secnesum in Jules Verne, Journey to the center of the earth, 1984. Or sorry, 1864. 1864. Jules Verne, Journey to the Center of the Earth. Cot, the body emanation, the cot is integral with the being's physical body. And is the original of what latter lesser cultures would represent as the energy body, the body of light, or the astral body, etc. In current field theory, it constitutes the life field of the person, controlling and directing its material counterparts and the organization, regeneration, and span of their existence. During physical life, it is coexistence or uh, coextensive with its material counterpart. After material death, it may remain with the corpse to serve as a medium for the other emanations, or it may merely linger near its remains. Jungians perceive the cot as the earthbound anima, and in the oriental version of the golden flower, it is known as the Qi. The dao, the undivided, the great one, gives rise to two opposite reality principles, darkness and light, yin and yang. These are at first thought of only as forces of nature apart from man. Later, the sexual polarities, and others as well, are derived from them. From Yin comes the Kun, the receptive feminine principle. From Yang comes the Qin, the creative masculine principle. From Yin comes Ming, life. From Yang comes sing, the essence. Each individual contains a sensual monad which at the moment of conception splits into life and essence, the Ming and the Hesing. These two are super-individual principles and so can be related to Eros and Logos. In this personal bodily existence of the individual, they are represented by two other polarities, a pao, a soul, or anima, and a Hun, a soul, or an animus. All during the life of the individual, these two are in conflict, each surviving for, and striving for mastery. At death, they separate and go different ways. The anima sinks to the earth as the kui, and ghost being. It is the kat which is drawn into or activated from within a corpse and necromantic magical workings. As the Secret of the Golden Flower by Richard Wilhelm Trans spoke about a classic of Chinese Taoism describing the process of attainment and transcendental existence by the means of creating a Mandela from the personal subconscious. A key influence in the magical philosophy of the Golden Dawn, Rosicrucian, W.B. Yeats's, also a more recent translation by Thomas Cleary. In 1991... The reader may surmise that the khat is also the origin and the vehicle for the zombie practices of voodoo and other occult ceremonies. 2. Rin. The name emanation. The Egyptians understood the power of names to identify, define, protect, and empower individuals. Most conspicuously in the various names taken by each pharaoh. Collectively and separately, each name affected the very essence of that person, and the greatest curse is also illustrated in literature and film, was to de- be denied of one's name. Externally, a name can be used to summon or compel, whether physically incarnate or not. The Neteru also have the power and the discretion to give names as well as take them, and through such names to take form and voice. For example, in Bram Stoker's The Jewel of the Seven Stars, the Egyptian priests who sought to prevent the feared sorceress queen, Tara, from returning to incarnate life, attempted to destroy all inscriptions of her name on her tomb as well as other references to her, but they failed. In H.B. Lovecraft's The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, the name and all references to the colonial sorcerer Joseph Kerwin were tracked down and obliterated by the vigilantes who murdered him. Elsewhere in exoteric history, it was a common practice for Egyptian pharaohs and priesthoods to attempt to deface or erase the names, images, and monuments of feared or hated predecessors, such as heretic Akhenaten. 3. The Kabat The shadow emanation This is the connection of the still incarnate Khat with the life forces of the natural Nidaru enabling it to function in the organizing and controlling energy, the life field. If the Kabat is destroyed, the life field de-energizes and the physical body expires. In black magic, the Kabat can also be sent out by its owner as an instrument of influence upon others. After the physical body is destroyed or no longer needed, the Kabat becomes an avatar of the needer. Anubis, overseeing guidance of the non-initiate consciousness through the incoherence of the dot into the stabilization of the amenti. As initiated consciousness needs no such guidance. The heart emanation, the ab- the physical locus of the individual identity and consciousness, hence the bridge between the OU, the universe of the Nidaru, and the SU, the subjective universe, of the four metaphysical emanations. It is through the ab that an individual realizes and recognizes the incarnate identity and uniqueness. And following destruction, expiration of one's body, it is through the ab that one can re-enter the OU as a ghost through possessions or more precisely merged with another incarnate ab, or through thought transference. It is also in the ab that the strength and quality of one's mot's inclination to good or evil purposes. This is echoed in the later Indian mythologies of karma and was the reason for the posthumous weighing of the heart against a feather in Egypt. After bodily death, the mot within the ab overwhelms itself completely and so that any subsequent manifestations in the OU, the Objective Universe, is likely to be an extreme concentration of either beneficence or malevolence. 5. Ba, the core emanation. This is each sentient being's sense of self-awareness, of unique and absolute distinction from everything else, both other sentient beings and the entire OU. This Thus it is the manifestation or the gift of set, the nature of non-nature, in each so conscious entity. The Baal becomes stronger through increased self-exploration and realization. The initiatory process of the Zepper, unlike natural initiation which draws the individual into alignment, harmony, and ultimately conscious absorption into and in distinction from one or the more of the natural niteru, Zepper are the Baal does not dissolve the self into set, but attains and sustains a cohesive essence of its own. The amnesia, or remembered knowledge, experienced by the slave boy in Plato's minnow is perhaps more accurately described as the physical process, stimulus response brain reaching into the ball for bits of the immortal eternal wisdom, but this is akin to reaching for a coal and a hot fire. It is stressful to do, and the result can be held only for a fleeting moment without further stress. The superficial physical self, which through material hits continuously, reassures itself that this is the only self. It's shaken by exposure to its falseness, its nothingness. It backs away from such close encounters, dismisses them as illusions, fantasies, imagination, etc., and hastens to rebuild its fortress of material sensation walls. Absent Sition orientation and initiation, a Ba simply continues as one sense of self-identity, thus the essential self around which all the other souls coalesce and recognize themselves. Within non-initiates, this results in the Ba being sensed as a dreamy, meditative state of being, which, if indulged in with persistence and intensity, leads to its overwhelming the other souls Hence the Nirvana, the similar states of Ba-ecstasy. The Ka, the transmigration emanation. The Ka is the complete mirror image of all eight natural and non-natural emanations. Fused into an avatar, a doppelganger, or horla, a completely metaphysical manifestation of oneself which can exist and displace without limit both within the non-natural universe generated by one's Ba, and within the physical universe of the natural nithiru as well. It is the Ka that, through the Ab, enters the natural universe through identity gates such as pictures or statues of the individual or utterances of the individual's names, the Rin, as well as through conducive locales such as temples and geological or archaeological or architectural anomalies. While the Ba may particularly posthumously lose awareness of itself through the paradoxical expansion of the consciousness into its new perceptive fields, the Ka remains immortally finite, distinct, and otherness separate, or otherwise separate. This is an expressive, active sense of becoming the externally identifiable individual beyond physical death. Nowhere is the call better illustrated than in initiate Bram Stoker's The Jewel of the Seven Stars. The film treatments of this work, such as Hammer's uh, Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, and the more recent The Awakening, have done it a grotesque disservice. In Stoker's original text, it is no sense a horror story, but rather a fascinating and romantic mystery. Who was terror of Ancient Egypt? This marvelous sorceress queen took with her to her tomb only a ruby scarab inscribed with the constellation of the Thigh of Set, or the Ursa Major, the Great Bear, and the hieroglyphs Myrrh Love and Minab Patience Listen to the words of the woman of her own era with whose Ka Terra came gently to merge. I can see her in her loneliness and in the silence of her mighty pride, dreaming her own dream of things far different from those around her, of some other land far away from the canopy of the silent night, lit by the cool, beautiful light of the stars, a land other than the northern star whence the blue sweet winds the cooled and feverish desert air, a land of wholesome greenery far, far away, where we were not, where we were not scheming and malignant priesthoods. Or where there are no scheming and malignant priesthoods whose ideas were to lead to power through gloomy temples and more gloomy caverns of the dead, through an endless ritual of death, a land where love was not base, but a divine possession of the soul, where there might be some one kind, a kindred spirit which could speak to hers through mortal lips like their own whose being could emerge with hers in a sweet communion of soul to soul, even as the breaths could mingle in the ambient air. I know that feeling, for I have shared it myself. I may speak of it now, since the blessing has come into my own life. I may speak of it, since it enables me to interpret the feelings, the very longing soul of that sweet and lovely Queen. So different from her own surroundings, so high above her own time, whose nature put into a word could control the forces of the underworld, and the name of whose aspirations, though but graven on a starlit jewel, could command all the powers of the pantheon of the high gods, and in the realization of that dream she will surely be content to rest." In love and patience we are taught the secret of true immortality, not the repulsive reanimation of corpses, Anastasis Necron of Christianity, nor the vague confusion of reincarnationists, but the infinite radiance of one's MS by its most magnificent expression and with the serene transcendence of natural time. The last two souls are unique in that they must arise from the individual and require initiate consciousness to do so. Per the formula Zeppera, Zepper, Zeppuru, I have come into being and created that which has come into being. Number seven, the Sikkim. The Nidr emanation. While the term Sikkim is ordinarily translated as power, this is misleading because it is power in a very rarefied sense that emanating from the Nidiru themselves. For this reason, it is also described as the power of the stars through which the Nidiru manifests in the natural universe. The Sikkim combines with the Oab. As in effect a temple within one's consciousness To draw down the essence of one or more addered Nidaru to indwell therein Activation of the sikkim has another effect Every incident infuses the initiate with more of the nider invoked To the cumulative degree that the initiate's personality becomes ass- accented by the niders Seeing as the nider sees, speaking as the nider would speak Acting as the needer would act. Hence it is the Sikkim which makes possible and ultimately consecrates the priesthood of a needer in the individual so aligned. Once this transformation has taken place, it cannot be undone. As it is most, it may be sublimated or repressed, but only at the great cost of the priests or priestesses very Sanity. The Ark. The star emanation. Beyond the priesthood of the Sekum is the Ark, in which the initiate rises to the company of the Nidaru as one of their essences, if not them absolutely. Such one is indistinguishable from the actual Nidaru except by the Nidaru themselves. Such a... Mode of existence departs completely from all concern with the physical displacement within natural universal references or boundaries, manifestations, or actions, and affects otherness only by the radiance of its presence. While it does not destroy any of the other emanations, it permeates all of them such that henceforth they all exist in in conformity and concert with it. Conventionalist Blinders What conventional Egyptology calls the Egyptian soul varies from 3 to 11 parts. Taken arbitrarily from the multitude of Old and New Kingdom magical and funerary texts favored by the Egyptologist offered his translation. What quickly becomes commonly evident is that these treat the entire subject, as indeed the rest of the Egyptian metaphysics, as nothing more than a primitive fairy tale, an entertaining curiosity, but certainly nothing to take seriously or to apply as a key to reality, only from the symbolists, who do not make their fatal mistake of regarding hieroglyphs as nothing more than an alphabet can be the modern mind move, as herein beyond the superficial and quaintly silly to the authentically experiential, the apprehension of the true, immortal, and eternal mind star. All one needs to do is focus one's consciousness past the physical sensory prison of the cot. As you seek and find each emanation, you will realize, if super rationally, Beyond the limits of caught realm alphabetics, expect this. Don't make the mistake of dismissing it as a mere imagination. You are unlocking a far greater reality, not merely corrupting the most crude and confining physical sensory illusion of it. Chapter 6 The Mind Star Activity And travelers now within that valley Through the red-litten windows see Vast forms that move fantastically To a discordant melody While like a rapid ghastly river Through the pale door A hideous throng rush out forever And laugh but smile no more Edgar Allan Poe The Fall of the House of Usher Metaphysical evidence. To this point, we have discarded inaccurate and incoherent representations of the soul, discussed how a purely metaphysical locus of conscious existence, the mind star, can interact with the incarnate body in the objective universe through filled functionality and return through amnesia to the original Egyptian mind star emanations. Within its familiar realm of the universal studies, physical science identifies and classifies phenomena, the natural laws governing them, through observation and repeat experimentation, the scientific method. How can the purely metaphysical mind star be similarly verified and tracked if it cannot be compared and contrasted to anything besides itself? The answer is that if the incarnate humans cannot see the mind star through any universal medium, they can accomplish the same identification and validation by looking at its reflections, its activity, in the course of both individual and group events. Once again, the ancient Greeks, after the Egyptian sages, had a word for this mind star. Footprint, And it is Logos. The Greeks saw the universe divided into a non-conscious, an automatic, functioning physis, conceived and implemented by a divine intelligence and consciousness, the Logos. The individual human intelligence, the Nos, was capable of coherent recognition and application of the Logos. Each human was thus a microcosm of the macrocosmic Logos. In classical Greece the term Nomos had to do with measure. As early as Sophocles, the Agraphos Nomos, the unwritten law, had divine sanction and with the later Stoics it was grounded in nature, physis as the imminent Logos. Nos for Anaxagoras was both a cosmological principle as the source of all motion and an eminent principle in all living beings. Diogenes qualified the principle which he de- denominated nous by replacing mechanistic interpretations with the view that its activity is intelligent and forms the best possible cosmos and it is expressed in the operation of a principle of measure among all things. In the later writings of Plato, Cosmos Nartos, the intelligible universe, is both produced and ordered by Nos, which is inherent in all men. Platinos drew the implication that Nos is transcendent as the cause of Cosmos Nartos and is immanent in human beings, each of whom is therefore a cosmos nertos. The Stoics concluded that the human gnos is a manifestation of the cosmic gnos. Gnos represents a binding together of human minds as rays from one central source of the cosmic intelligence. Thus the logos may be described as the field which enables the human intelligent consciousness to transcend the universe, physics, and come into its divine being as the Mind Star. As the human Mind Star energizes and is energized by the Logos, it radiates its existence in both an active and passive way. The active radiation, well known to the Egyptians, but not so clear to the Greeks, is Zepper. Hieroglyphic hieroglyphic zipper. It is sensed by the individual experiencing it, but is inherently difficult for others to perceive because it is constantly manifesting and enhancing the nose in question. It is unique and unpredictable in each individual. So, the most that others may sense is that something involved with the Logos is transforming that individual beyond the known and familiar. The passive footprint of humanity's encounter with the Logos is more easily seen by the intellectual and emotional reactions it has engendered throughout the course of history. One might suppose it to be a desirable, exhilarating experience, but remarkably this has not been the case. Failing to understand the divine dimension of the Logos, humans have more often than not reacted to its presence in them with confusion and fear. This uncertainty has not focused on the Logos as a unique principle, but rather upon its presumed purpose, telos. This has coalesced into extremes of absolute discretion or free will versus predestination or mechanization. The telos of logos, the scope and discretion of consciousness, the Greeks contended, evidence that each living being so endowed was far more than a mere survival, gratification, and reproduction mechanism. The self-aware mind... NOS extends far beyond this, indeed far beyond the discernible limits of the natural environment itself, the physis. There was of necessity a purpose to this existence greater than the natural, whether divinely or individually inspired, logos. In individual humans, the Egyptians knew it as Zeper, the ever-expanding evolutionary assertion of being. In Greece, it was sought as telos, usually translated as purpose, but referring not to mere convenience or application, but to a being's objectives or processes' metaphysical fulfillment. Thus, zephyr or telos was not always readily apparent. It was profound, hidden magic, which only the enlightened consciousness could come to recognize and appreciate. Again, the logos... Of the two terms, Zipper was by far the most elusive since it varied infinitely between the particularizations, especially the conscious beings. Telos was less multifaceted, looking for recognizable, predictable features in things or even beings of an apparent relationship. Thus, Telos could be ascertained through methodical, enlightened discovery. The dialectic, exemplified by Plato's dialogues, Zepper, on the other hand, does not pre-exist such as to be discovered through examinations. It is spontaneous and unique to each entity. Other enlightened intellectuals accordingly can sense it in its manifestations only. Thus while Zepper reveals no map or program of its unfolding, as it unfolds and expands it creates a progressively more identifiable trait or mirror of itself. To the perceptive onlooker, it's telos Again, telos refers to the end of a particular thing It's most functional, efficient, and effective object in that manifestation of its existence Happiness and harmony It lies in discovering that end or activity for which its being or thing is most precisely suited Then concentrating on that telos Accordingly, an initiate, activating and maximizing the personalized Zepper should pay close attention to its progressive revelation of telos so that he does not expend time or energy wastefully. It is relatively easy to establish the telos of a pencil or a table and even of most natural animals. Humanity, however, is another story altogether. Indeed, Once one is sensitive to this principle, much of the human history is revealed to it consists of confused and even violent arguments and contests concerning it, though uh, non-initiates never see the irreconciliations through this lens. The historical non telos the free will. As we have seen, Plato was a proponent of teleology. The doctrine that final causes of phenomena exist. Further, that purpose and design, logos, are a part of or apparent in nature. Further, that phenomena are not only guided by mechanical forces, the physics, but also move towards certain goals of self realization. The infamous British mystic and magician Alistair Crawley is well known for his admonition. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, which most assume to mean simply do whatever you want. In fact, he meant that one should first discover one's telos, then concentrate upon its fulfillment. Thou hast no right but to do thy will. The opposite of uh, theology is mechanism, which describes phenomena in terms of prior causes instead of the presumed destination are fulfillment. Modern science is thus mechanistic. Mechanism may be further divided into free will versus determinism ca- uh, subcategories. Free will advocates, uh, free will advocates say that humanity is completely discretionary; that people are free to do whatever they want or allow one another to do with no higher standard of any sort involved beyond social consensus. Such advocates tend to be religious atheists, and in their societal extreme are inclined to anarchism. This position ultimately demands a fallback to strict materialism, including the denial of anything metaphysical in humanity. Thus there is no soul. Humans are mere stimulus-response machines. Sophism. The roots of this cold utilitarianism may be traced back to 5th century BCE Greece, where the metaphysical concepts espoused by Pythagorians and Plato were rejected by a school of thought called Sophism. The Sophists, most prominent of whom was Pythagoras, Maintained that man is the measure of all things, a contention which Plato sought to refute in his republic. To do so, Plato's Socrates had finally to fall back on another metaphysical concept, the niasis, a, sep- a supra-rational apprehension of the ultimate good, the agathon, and humanity's inclination thereto. Insurprisingly, the argument did not command itself to to non-initiated minds unable to make sense of gnosis. So, the principles of sophism continued into such derivation. The complete statement statement attributed to Pythagoras, uh, mentioned before, was Of all things the measure is a man, and the things that are, that they are, and of the things they are not, that they are not. Hellenistic variations of skepticism, Epicureanism, Stoicism, and Cynicism. Skepticism. Skepticism introduced by the Pyro of Elis and Timon of the Platonic Academy in Athens, made to be defined as the doctrine that any true knowledge is impossible, or that all knowledge is uncertain, a position that no fact or truth can be established on philosophical grounds. If nothing can be conclusively known, argues the skeptic then virtualize an avoidance of judgment and thus of action. Beyond the individual, the community, Paulus, is something to be reluctantly endured for whatever relief from negative values it offers. It is not a positive thing in itself. In many ways, skepticism may be considered a clever parody of the Socratic method, Socrates, however, used a skeptical approach towards knowledge as a clearing away the mental underbrush device in order to better employ logic. The skeptics did not pursue a similarly positive, constructive approach to the acquisition of knowledge. Epicureanism Epicureanism was a ph- philosophy of hedonistic ethics that considered calmness untroubled by mental or emotional disquiet the highest good held intellectual pleasure superior to them and advocate the renunciation of momentary gratification in favor of a more permanent pleasures. It was introduced by and named by the Epicurus of Samos, and enjoyed considerable influence among the Greek civilizations of the Asiatic coasts. Epicurus, a pantheist who rejected conventional religion, felt that the aim of philosophy should be to free humanity from the fear of God who, if they exist, are too remote to concern themselves with human fortunes. He rejected metaphysics, holding that humans can know nothing of the supersensual world. Reason, he said, must accept the evidence of the senses. Epicurus considered mankind of completely natural product, and mind only another kind of matter. The soul can feel or act only by means of the body. He maintained, and it dies with the body's death. Accordingly, Epicurus considered virtue to be not an end to itself, but rather the means towards happiness. He recommended the simple, non-envious life of the country peasant. Everything natural is easily procured, and only the useless is costly. He said, desires may be ignored when our failure to accomplish them will not really cause us pain." Freedom from pain. It considers wisdom as an escape from the ha- the hazards and problems of life. It is a nice philosophy for one to be able to pursue it, but few are. An entire polis of Epicureans, to be sure, would cease to function beyond Homer's mythical land of the lotus-eaters. Stoicism. Stoicism was a philo- philosophical system holding that... It is man's duty to freely conform to natural law and his destiny, and virtue is the highest good, and that the wise man should be free from passions, equally unperturbed by joy or grief. First introduced by Zeno, a somewhat mysterious Phoenician-Egyptian, it was later espoused by Chrysippus, Cicero, Seneca, Epictetus, and Marcus Aurelius of Rome. Stoicism, too, was pantheistic. The world is the embodiment of and is governed by the logos, Spermaticos. All the universe is essentially one, but matter is dynamic. The universe goes through the cycles of expansion and contraction, development and dissolution. God is his entire process, not a being apart from the process. He is the soul of the universe so to speak. Man is a microcosm of the universe, so to speak. When he dies, his soul survives death as an impersonal energy. Ultimately, this will be reabsorbed into the universal energy. Stoics denied the skeptical contention that no objective knowledge or that no objective knowledge is possible, holding rather that a wise man can distinguish reliable impressions, cataleptica fantasia, grasping impressions from ethereal ones. Hence the Stoics thought it's possible to identify the universe as a single integrated substance in which the human existence and behavior partake in. Knowledge arises from the senses, which are also the final tests of truth. Experience does not always lead to knowledge, for perceptions may be distorted by passions and or emotions. Reason is the supreme achievement of humanity. Since humanity is integral with the universe, goodness in cooperation with, with nature, it is not the pursuit of pleasure with, with, which would subordinate reason to passion. If evil comes to a good man, it is only temporary and not really true evil, since in the greater sense it is natural evil. The Stoic thus accepts all fortunes and misfortunes of life, ideally calmly. He seeks an absence of feeling in his thoughts and conduct. Nevertheless, Stoicism does not excuse all events as deterministic. The individual is still responsible for virtuous or vicious choices measured against the natural approximation. The Stoic considers the average man a dangerous fool governed by passions and emotions rather than by virtue and reason. The Stoic disapproves of war and slavery and believes in humanitarianism and equality of all humans as elements of nature. But he does not advocate violent social revolutions or drastic policies to attain their ends. Change must come naturally, not artificially. Stoics sought harmony in society, which, unlike Epicureans, they acknowledge as natural. The Stoic ideal was a world society, a Cosmopolis, transcending regional divisions. One of Alexander the Great's goals for his empire was Cosmopolis. Or Cosmopolis. Cynicism. A variant on Stoicism was the early cynicism of Antisthenes and Diogenes, who advocated a rejection of worldly goods and involvement and a concentration on virtue as the only worthy goal. Cynicism simply translates to opportunism taken what life offers for better or worse, was eventually absorbed into the ethical posture of the greater Stoicism. Scholasticism During the Christian medieval and renaissance periods of European history, free will was condemned, indeed literally demonized as the disastrous consequence of Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, to acquire it by eating the fruit of its forbidden tree. Hence, virtue and right conduct during the era were discreetly and strictly to be found in questioned adherence to the post-Eden laws of God, and all that sinful humanity could do was to learn and obey them the best they could. That God had placed the tree there and given his human creatures not even a hint of the dire consequences, not just to them, but to the entire human race to follow them, was and still is judiciously ignored by Judeo-Christianity. In effect, it reduced Eden to the most cruel and sadistic of God's jokes." The High Middle Ages was not a particularly rich time in terms of the cultural arts save for the architectural ventures and the relatively severe and massively Romanesque style followed by the mid-12th century by the gothic lighter and loftier constructions with a greater emphasis upon vertical elements leading to skyscrapers. Some notable ballads and poems were composed about this time and music became somewhat more complex in its written formats. Thomas Aquinas was a Christian cleric who ultimately achieved Catholic sainthood by his success in reacting to the challenge of Islam and the rediscovery of classical philosophy, particularly that of Aristotle. Aristotle's influence had become so great that he was referred to as the philosopher, hence it was necessary to refine Catholicism to an intellectual precision comparable with that of Aristotle and also to make Aristotle's more secular and scientific works tolerable to the Church through a flattering interpretation of them, invoking Aristotle's argument for an unmoved mover. Aquinas suggests that the necessity for a first cause logically proves the existence of God. This was later to be challenged by David Hume, who suggested that cause and effects can go forward or backward indefinitely, and Immanuel Kant, who maintains that the doctrine of causality is applicable only to the realm of the sense experience. Aquinas observes that Aristotle had advocated the principle that the good to be found on a larger scale is better than the good to be found on a purely personal scale since the larger good more closely approximates and reflects the whole of creation. For non-human animals, the good consists of sensual pleasure, but for mankind, something more is sought. However, feeling the doctrine of his predecessor, Augustine of Hippo, Aquinas respected a distinction between the exaltation of God, the exaltation of God, Augustine's city of God and the lesser station of mankind, the city of man, Aquino, or sorry, Aquinas saw man's mission as while tied to his own city, his polis, to ever yearn for that of God. It was not an achievable telos, or even a visualizable one, because of mankind's post-Adenic sinfulness redeemable only by the intercession grace of Christ. So mankind's redemption lies beyond this life, the vision of God. The aim of incarnate life is thus not merely to live in virtue, but rather through the virtuous life to attain the enjoyment of God, quote-unquote, the blessings of God. Since natural human virtue is insufficient to attain this, It is not the task of secular rulers, but rather that of Christ through His Church to whose Pope all kings in Christendom should be subject. In addition to the Aristotelian content of Aquinas' thought, there is the legalistic element. The universe is obedient to laws, Aquinas defined laws as an ordinance or reason for the common good made by him who has the care of community and promulgated by a nature or a natural hierarchical organization or organization into forms and organisms of greater and lesser complexity so are the universal laws at the top of at, at the top of the list is eternal law which more or less equates with the mind of god accordingly it is intelligible only to god Next is natural law, which is eternal law to the extent that human reason can detect consistencies in it. Here would be found scientific laws. And that's basically a known history, the physical realities in all worlds that we can sense, is natural law. So there's eternal law, God is eternal, and there's natural law, which is the natural universe that he created and we are in. And natural law is comprehended through reason. Divine law is identified by religious revelations through Christ and the Christian Church. Divine law and natural law rank more or less side by side. The lowest on the scale is human law. A term in which encompasses laws which mankind makes in imitation of and towards the good perceived and revealed by natural and divine laws. The three drives which tempt man away from the goodness of eternal law are wealth, carnal pleasure, and honor status slash pride. Hence the three virtues are poverty, chastity, and obedience which address the three vices of the material world which causes one to be corrupted and stray from the eternal law to disobey the eternal law through the and disobey the divine law the human or the divine law the the, the natural law but may be allowed through human law because human law would be the one in error because people follow human law, but they but they need to follow natural law. And human law only is good if it follows natural law and divine law that themselves follow eternal laws. <coughs> In the defining or, irony of Judeo-Christianity, that it acknowledges the free will only to condemn it as the original and ultimate sin. Mankind unaided cannot escape its curse. The species only course is to obey and imitate God's laws with the hope that this will win the grace of Christ and the salvation of one's soul. This same demonization of individual consciousness and its free will occurs in the other conventional religions as well in Buddhism for instance it is condemned as anatta or not self which must be annihilated for the devotee to attain obliteration and absorption into the universe, a.k.a. nirvana. Reformation, the crisis of theological determinism. By the 1500s, as a consequence of the invention of the printing press, Europe possessed an estimated 9 million books as opposed to fewer than 100,000 handwrought manuscripts circa 1450. Within 50 calendar years, it gained over um, or 8,900,000 books. The exchange of ideas was accelerated, and with its criticism of religious, political, and social norms, the Reformations usually dated was the 16th century religious movement Correcting real or assumed abuses in the Roman Catholic Church and marked ultimately by rejection of the supremacy of the Pope. Rejection or the modification of much of the Roman Catholic doctrine. The establishment of the Protestant churches, the Reformation's key proponents were Martin Luther in Germany and John Calvin in Switzerland. While there were a number of sub-movements throughout Europe, they generally agreed upon fundamental Christianity as characterized by the finality and ultimate authority of the Bible, denial of the authority of the church bureaucracy to interpret the Bible, repudiation of reason and affirmation of faith, instead condemnation of the use of force for religious conversation, The two realms, spiritual grace and political power concept, which licenses unchristian acts if commanded by secular authority. To these essentially Lutheran, Lutheran points, Calvin adds a strong element of church coercion of the individual intelligence of the alternative religion. God makes plain that the false prophet is to be stoned without mercy. We are to crush beneath our heel, all affections of nature when his honor is involved. Luther and Calvin believe that mankind is totally depraved, that even good works fall short of God's standards of righteousness. The reason for ethical behavior is that a righteous man will automatically incline towards such behavior, not because it is logically or ethically justified in itself. Salvation is attainable only by the complete surrender of the self to Christ. The Constitution rejects of medieval scholasticism and logical ethics argument of Aristotle, this damned, conceited, rascal heathen, uh, quote-unquote, by Luther, and Aquinas. The reason is mistrusted and even condemned. Concerning the two kingdoms, Calvin stated, let us observe that in man government is twofold. The one spiritual, by which the conscience is trained to piety and to divine worship, the other civil, by which the individual is instructed in whose duties which, as men and citizens, we are bound to perform. To these two forms are commonly given the not-inappropriate names of spiritual and temporal jurisdiction, intimating that the former specifics has reference to the life of the soul, while the latter relates to the matters of the present life, not only to food and clothing but to the enacting of laws which require a man to live among his fellow, purely honorable and moderately. The former has its seats within the soul, the latter only regulates external conduct. We call the one the spiritual, the other the temporal." Calvin avoided prescribing the best form of government, feeling that this is a question for secular authorities to decide. Luther considered collective governance, governments to magnify human corruption, hence he favored monarchies. Against Catholicism, Luther and Calvin argued the autonomy of the state under God. Against radical fundamentalists such as the Anabaptists. They argued the theological necessity for civil government. Against aggressive civil rulers, they argued the autonomy of the church in the Protestant sense. Calvinism condemned art, Lutheranism tended to ignore it, and within Catholicism there was a reaction against renditions of nudes, resulting in the defacing or alteration of many earlier works. Consequently, there were few Reformation-era artists of note. With the exception of Dürer, Hauben, and El Greco, artists began to work more as professionals and to produce works for secular officials and for the middle class. In the scientific realm, Copernicus asserted heliocentrism. The greatest support for the Reformation came from the secular nobility and emerging merchant middle class. The support was born essentially of the desire for these groups to rid themselves of the economic burdens of the papacy and subordinate echelons. In time, the Reformation provoked the Catholic Counter-Reformation, a somewhat desperate and militant retrenchment by the Church. From 1545 to 1563, the Council of Trent, a Catholic Church conference, met to resolve questions of dogma. Once decided, These dogma were promulgated and enforced with a seriousness not found during the pleasure-loving papacy of the Renaissance. If my own father were a heretic, said Paul IV, I would burn him. In 1540, Ignatius Leola founded the Society of Jesus, Jesuits characterized by extreme discipline and Machiavellian social influence. Loyola placed great stress on education and by the 17th century, Jesuit-dominated universities were educating virtually all of Catholic Europe. After 1550, tensions between the Catholics and the Protestants had reached the stage of religious warfare, culminating in a terrible 30 Years' war between Denmark and Sweden and the Protestant-German principalities on one hand and the Catholic Habsburg, Spain, Austria, Netherlands, Italy and most of Catholic Germany on the other. France, though Catholic, fought against the Habsburgs for secular political reasons. Approximately one-third of Germany's population died from the war and its side effects, and the final peace of Westphalia, 1648, was brought about more by exhaustion than by genuine reconciliation. Secular negative free will. Culturally, the 16th and 17th centuries were a time of transition between medieval Renaissance knowledge and the new scientific climate of the Enlightenment. Ancient history was still known only by the Old Testament, other historics being considered later and inferior to it. While scripture put creation at 4004 BCE, histories began ca. 400 BCE, with large episodes of later history being unknown. The universe was generally thought to be the Earth-centric, and the non-Christian European world was considered to be savage. It was difficult for intellectuals to know just what to believe. Even the noted Galileo published his authority of scripture in 1614 and Isaac Newton devoted many years to biblical studies. He wrote, If any question at any time arise concerning Christ's interpretations, we are to be aware of philosophy and vain deceit and oppositions of science, falsely so called, and have recourse to the Old Testament, a generation after he published his famous Principia. And was still trying to discover the exact plan of Solomon's Temple, which he considered the best guide to the topography of heaven. Thomas Hobbes took a scientific materialism approach to the universe, asserting that the supernatural, or SU, was beyond rational understanding. Impressed by mathematics and geometry, Hobbes postulated human behavior as similarly structured. He thus sought to understand the mechanics or laws of human social behavior. Hobbes departed from the Aristotle and the medieval tradition by denying that man is a social animal, i.e. that he seeks companionship, society, and political interactions as an end in itself. Man is indeed a solitary beast." Echoing the sophists in Plato's Republic, there is no supreme good. There is only self-interest and gratification. In the first place, I put for general inclination of all mankind a perpetual and restless desire of power after power that ceases only in death. The supreme evil is death, and it is fear of death that prompts human cooperation in all things. Society is thus negatively motivated. In contrast to the natural inequality espoused by Aristotle, Hobbes argues that all humans are naturally equal, hence the door is open for social contract, which Hobbes defines as a de facto contract between the people and the state for popular security and prosperity, The individual contracts with society is thus bound to obey its laws, but he may disobey if his life is threatened. He reserves the right to make this decision for himself. The social contract has two parts. Agreement to acknowledge as sovereign the individual or group selected by the majority, and the vote determining the sovereign. The task of reason is to intensify the fear of death and the desire for comfort as factors in the society and to the extent that the resulting cooperation overcomes the destructive desire for glory and pride. Hobbes' ideal government has a simple task, to maintain order and security for the benefit of the citizen. The citizens, he says, do not submerge their individuality in it. They are contracting parties within it. Government should be authoritarian, but not totalitarian. Hobbes preferred monarchy as a form of government, but monarchy based upon its social effectiveness in maintaining order, not based upon the divine right of the king's principle. While Hobbes is systematic, he is not scientific in the sense that he supports his contention with empirical evidence. He is still a purely rational philosopher, much like Niccolo Machiavelli. He was the first exponent of possessive individualism, the trade-oriented ethic of the 17th century that ran counter to the landed aristocratic system and institutional religious conflicts that it produced. He advocated politics based upon material self-interest for individuals. Hobbes differs from Machiavelli in that Hobbes does propose a morally binding social law based on natural law in the observed behavior sense. Machiavelli is comparatively lawless, no social contract, and of course, no telos, no rationale other than the raw power politics. The Enlightenment, secular positive free will. The late 17th and 18th centuries loosely encompasses a scientific and cultural climate known as the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was not an organized or coordinated movement, as could be said of the Reformation compartmentalized through it was. Rather, it was a sort of encouraging or stimulating atmosphere for certain kinds of thought brought about by at least the limited acceptance of ideas of few prominent pioneers, such as Francis Bacon, René Descartes, Isaac Newton, and John Locke. Among them, the Enlightenment were a relegation of mankind to a natural place, not a privileged place within the natural order of things. A vague general disbelief that God, if he will presume to exist, would ignore the operation of natural laws to take an interest in the behavior of individual human beings, for better or worse. A sentimental admiration for the culture of ancient Greece and Rome, together with a distaste for the medieval Christian heritage. Increased emphasis on the affairs of the present world as opposed to an afterlife. A growing humanitarianism, being respected for and kindness to others for their own sake as fellow natural creatures. The enlightenment, however, was a phenomenon limited to the literate, wealthy, and noble classes. The masses of European populace and American immigrants were still impulsive and superstitious. The 16th and 17th centuries also encompassed Europe's great witchcraft hysteria when millions of victims were tortured and burned to death at the stake, primarily in France and Germany. The appearance of Halley's Comet in 1682 was particularly interpreted as a sign of divine wrath. So, the confused climate of Hobbes' era continued to pervade much of the Enlightenment as well. It may be hypothesized that the forthcoming age of revolutions was energized by the spread of the Enlightenment's techniques, among them, a general populace insufficiently educated and enlightened to handle them saved through oversimplified, extreme, violent methods. John Locke was an advocate of a treasonable Christianity. Admitting pro forma that possibility of revelation, but not t- taking it into political account. His religious toleration was, not, was noteworthy, but limited, excluding as it did atheists and Catholics. Locke saw humanity as having begun in a state of nature. Men living together according to reason without a common superior on earth with an authority to judge between them. It is properly the state of nature. The opposite of the state of nature is civil society. Those who are united into one body and have a common established law and judicature to appeal to, with authority to decide controversies between them and punish offenders, are in civil society one with another. But those who have no such common appeal, I mean on earth, are still in the state of nature. The basis for Locke's civil society is uh, cooperative self-preservation. Locke does not talk significantly in terms of such ideals as charity, ethics, morality, virtue, love, etc. His basis for society is positive, assuming willing cooperation as opposed to the point of view of Hobbes, whose society came together through hatred and fear. The state of nature shouldn't be endured since it is characterized by poverty and hardship. Locke uses the Indians of the Americas as example of people living in the natural state. The remedy is civil government. Locke introduced a labor theory of value, saying that it is the changes wrought in the natural animal, vegetable, and mineral good of the earth which makes them valuable. Another way to make them valuable is to restrict the supply by closing off producing areas, i.e. private ownership of land and assets. Locke defends private land ownership and accumulation of wealth and power through money as raising the general standard of living above that of penury, which he attributes to the state of nature. Hence the concept of property becomes central to Locke's civil society. The great and chief end of men's uniting into commonwealths and putting themselves under government is the preservation of their property. The property is defined to include life, liberty, and estate, the basis for the famous phrase of the U.S. Declaration of Independence. Since self-preservation includes personal property and the most powerful emotion, lock feels that any government which is not based upon it is fighting nature and will not survive. He takes issue with the ancient philosophers, who considered the emotions the things to be suppressed and conquered in favor of rational virtues. Politically, he was, so, he was a social contract theorist, advocating a de facto contract between the people and government to provide for the people's life, liberty, and estate. Political power, then, I take to be the right of making laws, with penalty of death, and consequently all less penalties for the regulating and preserving of property." And of employing the force of the community in the execution of such laws and in the defense of the Commonwealth from foreign injury. And all this only for the public good. Locke is responsible for the doctrine that all government should be limited in its powers and exists only by consent of the governed. He introduces the concept of inalienable rights, which cannot be contracted. Away wave- by the government or anyone else. He postulates that all men are created equal, there being nothing more evident than that creatures of the same species and rank promiscuously born to all the same advantages and nature and the use of the same faculties should also be equal amongst one another without subordination or subjugation. Locke's preferred form of government is limited government with the legislative branch superior to the executive he considered the judicial function to be included in the legislative he advocated policy making based on what he called the law of the greater force which is interpreted to mean majority rule this implies the democratization of truth which Plato had utterly rejected prerogative is Locke's term for the ability of the executive king or otherwise to occasionally act above and beyond the written law expressly for the public good The people shall be judged whether the powers of government are being used to endanger the people. According to Locke, an abusive executive is actually warring on the people by using the force they entrusted to him against them. Thus, he is no longer a political leader, but a tyrant. He, not they, is outside society. Locke distinguished between rebellions and revolutions. He approved of the former and disapproved of the latter since revolution implies the overturning of the entire social order as opposed to riddling the society of a tyrant. Locke bases his political philosophy upon reason, paying lip service to rational ideals. Like Hobbes, he wants to build a system that will reflect basic man rather than one which sets ideals and expectations for him that he cannot reach. The advantage of this kind is a system that is overreaching itself and rarely falls victim to hypocrisy of a structural sort, since not much except cooperation and stability is expected of it. The disadvantage is that it is a difficult system to improve by inspired or intellectual hardship, since the political power is concentrated in majority opinion, which tends to be sluggish, conservative, complacent, and apathetic, unless a crisis shocks it into action. Political power can be corrupted through the economic, social, or demagogic manipulation of the people. Secular emotional free will. John Jack Rousseau began his social contract. Man was born free, and everywhere he is in change. But how did this come to pass? I do not know. What can make it legitimate? I believe I can resolve this question. Rousseau, like many other enlightened philosophers, postulates an impersonal God more or less identical to divine natural law. He saw no connection between the actual essence of God and conventional religious institutions. They distort and pervert. They are valuable only insofar as they contribute to society as reflections of a general will. As a popular ordering device, he would rather cynically propose the institutions of civil religion, requiring belief in God, Immortality, happiness of the just, punishment of the wicked, and sanctity of the social contract under laws. subordinate to the civil religion, religious creeds could be tolerated if they themselves are tolerant. Rousseau feels that the defects of civil society are due to its basis on economic motivations, since personal profit is the primary factor determining human relations. Trusting and fellowship are destroyed, and selfishness and neglect of civic duty are encouraged. The rich use society to protect their privileges, and the poor are oppressed by the same use of society and its privileges. Rousseau denies that the progress in the arts will ultimately improve manners and morality, as the mainstream of the Enlightenment supposes. Rather, the arts are increasingly corrupted because of their requirements for luxury and patronage in order to prosper. Moreover, their subjects emerge from the vices of the soul, idle curiosity and the desires for unnecessary comforts. Rousseau's ideal society are the city-states of ancient Greece, Sparta in particular, and Rome, because they were operated at least originally on the principles of virtue. His modern ideal state would be improvements upon their basic concepts. Rousseau feels that the other social contract theorists were not radical enough in their efforts to understand pre-political man. Hobbes is correct in saying that societies are built on hostility and adverse, but wrong in saying that man is naturally this way. Locke was correct in saying that society is to protect civic and pr- private property, but wrong in saying that this is natural and reflects justice. Rousseau's natural man has two fundamental passions, self-preservation and sympathy with others of his kind. Natural man differs from other animals because of his capacity for free exercise of the will. He is not governed merely by instincts. The awareness of his free will is evidence of the spirituality of the human soul. Implies its somewhat vaguely conceived reflection of the Logos. Man can also use his free will to improve its level of knowledge and sustain it over generations. It is this same free will that which man is downfall, because he used it to move from a free animal existence to the misery of civil life based upon inequality and private property. Modern man cannot very well go back to natural state of existence, so the problem is to find a form of association which defends and protects with all common force the person and the goods of each associate by which... Uniting himself to all obeys nevertheless only himself and remains as free as before. To have one's cake and eat it too. To reproach natural freedom while retaining the benefits of civil society. Rousseau's solution is that everyone first give all of his rights and property to the state and submerge his personal will in a cooperative general will. The only true source of morality is this general will, because it is the function of all citizens. It is limited in its flexibility, and its limitations establish the boundaries of morality. Having moved from a benevolent state of nature to a civil society which encourages hostility and avarice, mankind needs a social contract which best reflects the general will. The general will most likely and most closely approach the virtues of natural mankind. If a man obeys his private will in a civil state, he reduces himself to the level of a brute animal and causes society to degenerate into an oppressive, power-manipulative system. He must formulate his own will in terms of relevance to moral principle. As expressed by General Will, the society forces him to be free and to exercise his will in a coercive with the General Will. His consciousness accepts of this reality and responsibility results in true human dignity. Rousseau is a Republican by necessity since modern states are too large for a direct democracy. He considers representative government unfortunate, however, since it weakens the expression of a general will. He advocates a majoritarian voting system, but he stresses that this will works only if people do not vote according to their private wills. But according to the rather severe morality imposed by the general will. Rousseau despises the democracy, known to this time as a wild anarchy of self-interest. Factions such as political parties and interest groups would have to be outlawed as devices corrupting a person's interests and motives away from those of general goodwill. Rousseau allows no reserved or inalienable rights against the government, as does Locke, because they de facto weaken the general will by allowing individuals to ignore the social contract at critical moments. Moreover, it is private life of the individual which determines his respect for the public laws and institutions. Rousseau is perhaps a little too conveniently considered the philosopher of the French Revolution as Locke is of the American Revolution. It is true that Rousseau's is to emotions over reason and his glorification of the masses, the general will, lend themselves to the interpretation. But the actual causes of the French Revolution, more properly. Revolutions, as there was a series of them, were the inability of the French absolute monarchists to effectively run the country and a national financial crisis caused by almost constant war and the exemption of the nobility and the clergy from domestic taxations, i.e. the greater will. During the revolutions, Rousseau's appeal was never to the middle classes of the third estate. They were uneasy about the property and the property of... abolition aspects of the philo- philosophical uh, you know, class. Rather, his appeal was to a more radical elements in the lower classes who gained power for a time during the reign of terror. Free will, religious curse to secular obliteration. So, in this exhaustive and tragic historical survey of humanity's grappling with a purely mechanistic concept of free will, we have seen it proceed from a religious curse to a secular monster, both perceived to require subduing and surrender by the individual either to God or to society. The religious demand culminating from the maniacal extremism of the Reformation held out to no hope and compensation from such surrender. The later social contract theorists' arguments ranged from the most ominous relief from nihilistic anarchy to some degree of cooperative benefit and cultural emotional stability. The premise of free will thus required its obliteration, either voluntarily or coercively. Once again, Arwell's 1984 described the inevitable results, a totalitarianism in which the individual has not only relinquished his individuality, but indeed cannot even conceive of it, apart from the Rosicrucian general will of the party. But how can you say and stop people remembering things, cried Winston? It is involuntary. It is outside oneself. How can you control memory? How have you not controlled mind? O'Brien's manner grew stern again. On the contrary... He said, you have not controlled it. That is what has brought you here. You are here because you have failed in humility and self-discipline. You would not make the act of submission, which the price of sanity. You prefer to be a lunatic, a minority of one. Only through initiation can the few elect in their numbers... Sorry. Uh-oh. Miss Patriot. It is... Ex- oh sorry. It, That is the fact that you have got to relearn. It needs an act of self-destruction effort of the will. Earth in the 21st century remains predominantly a mixture of both the religions and post-religious telos ignorant. Like those chained in the darkness of Plato's cave. They can see and think no further than the old superstitions, fears, and social constrictions of free will. Only through initiation can the few elect of their number cast off these chains and awaken to the true and non-destructive enlightenment of the Telos. Thank you all very much for joining me on my reading. That is part two of... Mind Star by Michael Aquino.